Now you may or may not have solved the riddle here, because how exactly do I speak doppelganger? Unless I'm a doppelganger. But nobody's asked me if I am, so who knows? Well, pops up a beer or a cold libation, let me tell you how I wrote this little thing. I went and took a call from brother Jason, and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast, and I ask him what you got. He said I'll start off with some talking and some movie clips, some popcorn fighting, fantasy explorations, and some groundness exploitation. Kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxings, full month or movie marathon. Sometimes I'll let the box come on, contest and a push, you know it's all about games. I said slow down, let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds RPG Variety. With the other, Jason. Welcome back to Nerds RPG Broadcast. I'm your host, Jason. Got a fun show for you today. We're going to talk about brain moles. We're going to do the mailbag segment. And we've got a bunch of calls about a bunch of neat stuff. Normally, I would also have gaming recaps, but haven't really been any games. I did get to play in Pathfinder 2, run by Carl Rodriguez, where the Geomologist Presents, the Abomination Vaults. But not a whole lot. There's role-playing in that game. Not, there wasn't any combat. Not a whole lot happened. We had some hiccups. There was some miscommunication at the beginning of the session, and then there were some issues, the VTT with Fantasy Grounds. But we did get to play a little bit. It was fun. I always enjoy playing with that group of guys. We are going to switch that game to weekly. It's going to be happen every week, so hopefully that'll help overcome some of the VTT foibles that we're experiencing. And, and the story will progress a little bit better. So look forward to more of that to come. Aside from that, I had a little bit of a stomach bug, so I missed a couple games, unfortunately. Definitely looking forward to jumping back into gaming now that I'm feeling better. But for this episode, we're not going to talk about gaming. Well, we are going to talk about gaming. We're not going to talk about gaming that I've done. We're going to talk about gaming subjects. So let's get into that. First up, we have our gotcha segment. This is the eight where we look at AD&D first edition monsters that are pretty much in there just as a FU to the players or as a annoyance to the players or to progress the plot. That's kind of why they're there. I've also seen these referred to as punishment monsters. <laughs> I almost wish I had labeled the segment punishment monsters instead of gotcha monsters, but we'll leave it what it is. So we have the brain mole. Now the brain mole, actually, <laughs> you could do a lot of neat things with this little critter. One thing I didn't do when I talked about the ear seeker last episode was talk about the genesis of the ear seeker. And somebody brings that up in a phone call. So I'm going to go back and cover the genesis of the ear seeker, but it's going to be during the mailbag segment. So stay tuned for that because the ear, ear seeker has a very interesting history and where we believe it, it came from, where we think Gygax or whichever the the people playing came up with that creature. But right now we're going to talk about the brain mole. Where do the brain, well, what is the brain mole, first of all? Brain moles are very rare. One to three appear, armor class nine, move one inch, hit die one point. You won't find them in their lair. They don't have treasure, don't attack. Well, they don't have physical attacks. They don't do any damage, but they... They have psychic abilities only. They only do a psychic attack. No special defenses. They have standard magic resistance, animal intelligence. They're neutral. 
They're small, three inches long. They have 121 point attack and they have attack mode B for psychic attack modes. The text here says they're small mole-like animals which inhabit most places above and below ground. Brain moles are attracted by psychic activity of any sort, including magic spells, which duplicate psychic effects, psionic effects. When a brain mole is within 30 feet of any creature exercising such psionic activity, it will seek to feed upon the energy being used by psionically burrowing into the mind. This has the effect of attacking the mind with 121-point strength mind thrust upon the creature using psionic energy. This burrowing will have a 20% chance per melee round of causing permanent insanity in a non-psionically endowed creature, employing psionic energy through spells or magic items. Cessation of the spell or abandoning the use of the magic item will immediately relieve the attack. A psionic under attack must escape the range of the brain mole or kill it to halt its burrowing. I skipped a couple things. I like I skipped the black pudding because I don't view the black pudding as a gotcha monster. But I do view this one as because notice it doesn't not only there's a bunch of monsters in this game that only exist to attack people that use psionic abilities. I guess to help discourage you from using psionics as if the, the rules in Appendix A don't discourage you enough. There's a bunch of these gotcha kind of monsters, but this one and the others as well also go after certain spells, which is kind of interesting. We're going to loop back around to that. But first, let's talk about the history of the brain mole. Where do we think this thing came from? Well, it's hard to say. It's possibly inspired by a story, a novel called The Mind Parasites. The Mind Parasites was written by Colin Wilson, the UK author, in 1967. And it was written at the urging of August Derleth. And it actually falls in your Cthulhu mythos. So this was kind of written to kind of fit into the Cthulhu mythos. It's a story about Professor Gilbert Austin's conflict with the Dasogians, invisible mind parasites that menace the most brilliant people on earth. It's It's been printed a couple times. You, you might be able to find it out there. Um, I've got a copy of this book actually somewhere buried in the stacks. I, I bought it a while back. Not for this episode. I bought it. I don't remember why I bought it. Somebody else mentioned it and I picked up a copy, but I haven't actually read it, unfortunately. So I can't go further into that, but that's possibly where this came from, is that book. Now, when we look at how this is used, let's go to the Dungeon Master's Guide and see what it says. So, and I'm on page, was this 182 in the Dungeon Master's Guide? Psionic encounters. If you opt to include psionic powers in your campaign, then certain random encounters will be with psionically empowered creatures. Check for random encounters as is normal, but if a player party has used psionic powers during the last turn or spells resembling psionic powers during the last round, then the chance for a psionic encounter will be one in four if an encounter is otherwise indicated. After checking for a random encounter, roll D4 to find if the encounter is psionic. If the second attack table is positive, go to the psionic encounter table and check thereon to find what creatures involved. The encounter otherwise occurs as normal, although certain creatures will not be detected by the party. Well, you say, wait a minute, this isn't just psionics, there's also certain spells. That's right. 
So if you have players that cast some of these spells a lot, guess what? They're going to attract these creatures. One in four random encounters. And, and some of these monsters on the Sonic encounter table, I mean, the brain wall, you just heard what it does. That's kind of nasty. But on the Sonic encounter table, you also have demon princes, arch devils. <laughs> there, there's really nasty stuff on this table. So you you might have be in real a lot of trouble. You have first level party out there and they cast detect magic. They could attract a demon prince in this game. So yeah, that could be a bad day. Detect magic, you say? That's right. So these spells resembling sonic powers that these sonic creatures, which are going to make up a fair amount of these gotcha monsters, but these spells that'll trigger these are Astral Spell, Augury, Blink, Charm, Any. So Joe Richter of Hindsightless, your Charm person can, can attract one of these horrible creatures. Clairvoyance, Clairaudience, Cure, Any. So Cure Light Wounds can attract a Demon Prince. Who would have thought that? How often in your games do you use that rule, I wonder? Detect Any. Detect Magic, Detect Evil, Detect Alignment. That... Any of those things, or actually it's no alignment, I'm sorry. But any of the detect spells can attract them. Dimension Door, Enlarge, ESP, Featherfall, Feign Death, Heal, Heat Metal. So your druids can attract them too when they do Heat Metal. Hypnotism, Invisibility, any. So any invisibility spell, no alignment. Leviathan, Plane Shift, Polymorph, any of the Polymorph spells. Remove Curse, Shape Change, Stone Tell, Tele... T-E-L-E dash any in temporal stasis. So there's a heck of a lot of things here that can attract these things. And if you're playing with this rule, then immediately after one of these spells is cast, if you would then check for wandering monster, so say combat's over, okay, clerics, we're, we're going to rest. Clerics can cast cure light wounds. Well, if you're all wandering monster, then one in four chances, one of these horrible, horrible psychic things, they're going to come and just, you know, re really tear you up. Like I say, you've got demons and devils and intellect devourers and mind flares. And if you're lucky, you'll attract a yellow mold, right? <laughs> or a gray ooze. But some of these things are really, really nasty. Um, a titan you could attract. So... Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff on here. Actually, maybe your best bet is one of the options is a human psychic that or human psionic. That might be your best bet is to attract a human psionic. That'd be, definitely be better than a demon prince coming after you. Okay, so that's the... Oh, one other thing with the brain mole before I, I leave this segment of the show. So what else could we do with this thing? Well, one thing I've read about a lot of people doing with them, which is interesting. Now, it would you would only be rich people and your wizards and you you know crime lords and all because they're very rare creatures, but you could have a brain mole hanging around with you. You know I, I've read about people that like say you're running your crime boss or whatever who keeps a pet brain mole. Why would you keep a pet brain mole? Well, it's going to automatically punish anybody that comes in tries to read their mind or detect their alignment or approach them invisibly, anything like that. It, it's going to meet that brain mole is going to almost immediately attack them. So they're great defense systems. When you think about it, you could have a whole venture about 
maybe you have a crime lord who breeds brain moles and he sells them to other crime lords and he hands them out to his lieutenants, right? So, so there's some really cool things you could do with these things. I, I really like the idea of a brain mole farm and, and handing them out. And, um, and I like the idea of having your big bad, depending what kind of what they are. But if you have a big bad who's a human, maybe having a pet brain mole could really eliminate some of the options the party has unless they get in there and get it or they know about it. Because if they don't know about it, that'd be a nasty surprise for them. Okay. Now, I've got a bunch of calls and I've been yabbering for a while. So why don't we switch gears and listen to some phone calls? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Well, maybe it's your auntie or a joke by your spouse, but the operator's screaming is coming from inside the house. Yo, Jason, so in your response to uh, throwing bags of treasure at a monster to escape, you talk about throwing copper pieces at it. And then later on, towards the end of your response, you talk about how adventurers, rightfully so, probably aren't going to be carrying around copper pieces because they ain't worse yet. You know, you come across a big pile of copper pieces in a dungeon, you're probably not going to be hauling that around. Uh, so if you're running from a monster, you're not going to have time to sort through your treasure and find what's the least valuable stuff. I mean, if I was running that and the party wanted to throw a bag of treasure to get away from a monster, it would be some sort of random roll, uh, on their treasure table to see what they actually throw unless they want to stop and take the time. And then in that case, the monster catches them. So yeah, dude, I don't think they'll be throwing the party will be throwing copper pieces because I don't think they have the copper pieces. They're not carrying those. Like you pointed out, they're just heavy and worthless. Anyway, man, it's an interesting topic. Peace out. The key is to have a separate small sack that just has 90 copper in it that you can toss out. Of course, it's got to be a small sack because in AD&D First Edition, a small pouch or purse holds 25 gold pieces worth. A large pouch holds 50 gold pieces worth. And yeah, you need to get to up to the size of a large sack or maybe a tied shirt to carry 100 gold pieces. Sorry to break in here. I meant to say small sack or tied shirt, and I didn't introduce the caller. This is Joe Richter of Hindsightless. Okay, back to my answer. Worth of encumbrance. So, yeah. You'd effectively have to have a small sack tied off to your belt or hanging off your backpack. And then, I mean, if it was hanging off somebody's backpack, somebody else could grab it off the pack as they're going and, and, and dump it out if you'd planned it that way. Maybe everybody ties a small sack and ninety gold piece or ninety copper pieces off their backpacks, so anybody else can just grab it off somebody else's backpack and dump it as they're all running. I don't know, but you, you're not wrong. I mean, if if they didn't have a way to have it separated, then definitely you would have to if they're just reach into a bag of of gold. Now, if if they've segregated it out, and you don't have to throw ninety, you know, if you throw if you have a large pouch that you've got five copper pieces in, I mean 50 copper pieces in, and threw that out, then that would give you a 60% chance of distracting them. So you could always just go with that. You know, you don't have to throw 90. You could throw less than that and, and still get a chance. Hey, Jason. Daniel from Manus. Keep calling in. Sorry, I'm a bit behind. Uh, on your uh, first adventure... 
session, I guess. Uh, I don't know if you're further than that already. Uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. I wonder, I have a question about Surprise, because, uh, I mean, and I, I don't know, I haven't run 1E in a while, but there's that kind of interesting, like, during the segments of Surprise, if you have a missile weapon, you get, like, all these extra shots. Um, is there a reason why you had them aim the bow and not just shoot the first segment? Is, is it because they didn't have it ready? Uh, I'm curious about that, but I actually like uh, the way you did it. Uh, I don't think you just narrating what happened, like telling a story would be as fun. I actually like that you're actually playing. Uh, that's one of the things that I prefer when I'm listening to an actual play is that the person's rolling the dice and stuff there. Uh, I mean, I don't care if I can hear it, if it's on Roll20. You could obviously add a sound effect, but I really enjoyed it. Hey, Daniel, thank you so much. And as you probably know by now, that version of the actual play's gone the way of the dodo. I had people reach out to me that wanted to play that game. <laughs> so that has turned into a, a play-by-post game that I'll, I'll give updates, you know, when they're maybe about once a week or so. But And it was a little bit unwieldy with that many characters. So what I'm going to do is I'm still going to do an actual play for the show, but I'm just going to do a, a smaller amount of characters and, and do the randomly generated dungeon out of the back of the book because trying to run a module so I'm really doing the DM and the players and the players trying to do solutions to problems and all is a little bit much for me it feels too much like fanfic for me where if I randomly generate characters and then put them through randomly generate dungeon I'm hoping that'll work a little better so we're going to try that but as far as your question or and, and so definitely look forward to that because you're not the only one that said they kind of like what I was doing so hopefully they'll like what I'm going to do here in the future. But, okay, now we're going to rewind back, rewind back to your question. As far as the Harpy situation goes, yes, there is accelerated rate of fire during surprise. And the reason I did wait was because I wanted to see if one or both of the Harpies went to sleep. And I had to say that I didn't have to say, but I wanted to say that the characters were doing something. So I, there wasn't a mechanical advantage to them aiming. I just did it more for flavor. The reason I didn't want to fire the same time I was doing the sleep spell was because I would rather them go to sleep without firing any arrows. Because when you in AD&D, when you shoot into a group like that, you're not targeting an individual. You're targeting the group. And since they're all the victims and the harpies are all medium-sized creatures, you'd have equal chance of hitting victims and harpies. So I, you know, there there was no way for me to have a better chance to hit a harpy than a one of the, the wounded or as it turned out one of the dead people. So it, it was safer for the the victims they were attacking for me not to fire into melee. So that's why I didn't do it. I was hoping the sleep would get both of them, and it did. But great question. Thank you for asking. Now we have more from Daniel. Okay, just starting to listen to 303. That Pathfinder game sounds awesome. Uh, I have a couple questions. So, first of all, I, I totally imagine your character being like an old-fashioned black-and-white uh, character from an old movie, somehow stuck into a modern uh, Marvel movie when you started explaining everybody else's character. <laughs> so, it sounds awesome. But now, when you use that fire against the wolf, even though it was just a stick, did it do, like, extra damage? I'm curious how that would work. Uh, in Pathfinder, because I have no idea about Pathfinder. Uh, I find that being creative with using not actual weapons in, like, say, 5e, which is the closest game I'm familiar with, is worthless. <laughs> you know, so I'm curious if in Pathfinder it actually was, like, an awesome move, or was it just kind of a waste because a stick does a d4 damage and it had fire, so it did a little extra, or was it, like, an awesome attack because it was fire? 
curious, uh, let me know. Daniel, thanks for the call. Yeah, Joe runs a great Pathfinder game. It was a lot of fun. Um, I, I kind of felt that kind of, you know, just vanilla, boring human. But I'm not real familiar with Pathfinder, so I didn't want to take on a really crazy race with a lot of abilities. In the Pathfinder 2 game I'm in, I am playing a goblin, so I do have some extra things going on there. But as far as that game with the Winter Wolf, the fire did do extra damage. I don't know how much... Joe didn't tell us how much damage each blow did, but he did describe that they were doing extra damage. I, I, I think he did slip at one point and say that attack, fire-based attacks are doing double or triple the damage. I forget what she said. But he didn't say, like, you did three points of damage, but you did six points because it was fire. He didn't say anything like that. So I don't know exactly the maths of how it worked, but he did mention that the fire-based attacks were doing more damage than normal. To Carl's uh, call-in, I guess there's two reasons why I'm not a fan of point buy versus stat array. One is that I think it can still lead to a little bit of a power-building vibe, which I'm just not, in a, you know, I'm not a fan of. Uh, and the second reason is because I'm kind of lazy, I guess, and... <laughs> I don't want to have to figure out, oh, this many points. I just These are the numbers. Just build. In fact, I actually ran or played a bunch of games with the guy that ran a lot of white box. So, you know, OD&D clone. And he would do a stat array. He'd be like, you start with these stats. And that actually worked out pretty well, too. So, I mean, I think stat array is interesting because it allows you to start on level ground. And I think level ground is important in a game like 5e, for instance, where it's supposed to have some kind of balance. So I guess that's the reason why. I'm far from an expert in it, so I'm probably uh, incorrect there. And point by is probably exactly the same thing uh, as he points out. <laughs> All right, Jason, I have the, the solution for you. You use stat array, and then you roll a d6 for each of your stats, and you place it in the appropriate ability. That way you get the randomness, but you also have the balance of stat array. So there you go. I have This is for my new game, my fifth new game that I'm working on. I'll have stat array. Hey, Daniel. I don't know if you heard me say it. I don't remember if I said it on this podcast or on Carl's podcast. Yeah, when it comes to the stat array thing, instead of doing a stat array and then rolling a die, I think what I recommended was if you want to play more heroic, do 2d6 plus 6 for your, your stats. Or I guess alternatively, you could do kind of what you're saying is you could do 12 plus a d6 for your stats. And, and that would work out as well. But either way, you would end up with about average characters. As far as the first call where you're talking about stat array and point by, I think the difference is with a stat array, everybody's on the same page, or not the same page, but everybody's on the same level, where with the point by, I think there is some player skill involved in that because you could do a poor distribution of points where stat array, the points have been distributed for you, so not really being good at distributing the points isn't going to hurt you as much as it would with point buy. You, you know what I mean? If in point buy you bought an 18 and everything else is an 8 or something, I don't, I don't know. It depends how many points you have. But obviously that character is probably going to be inferior in everything but one thing, where stat array is looking to get a character that's generally more good across the board, right? So I think you can come up with weaker characters with point by than you can with stat array as far as across the party. I mean, obviously everybody has the same amount of points in the party, but if everybody has the same stat array in the party, they're all going to be kind of equal, assuming they pick the best stat array for their class. Whereas point by, you could definitely end up with 
people with less player skill having inferior characters because they allotted their points wrong, if that makes sense. Hey, Jason, calling in about Carl's uh, boar's head trap, if I understand it correctly. Uh, by the way, boar's head is delicious deli meat. So, yeah, there's that. But anyway, so <laughs> I just shoveled in snow and decided to stop and call in. Yeah, I, I, your answer about player skill, that's the first thing I thought, too, was where's the rest of the party? I wonder if the rest of the party could have pulled them out of the boar's head. I'd love to know more about this trap. So uh, hopefully he'll call in and tell us a little more. Daniel, your hopes have been realized. Carl does talk about it more, but he does it on his podcast. So if you go to the latest episode at the time of release of this episode for The Geomologist Presents, it's called When Villains Get Away. And I'll have a link to it in the show notes. About 40 minutes into that podcast, he responds to a call from Joe Richter, and he reads the trap from the it's a fifth edition trap from a published adventure and, and he'll, he reads the trap and talks about it on his show. Spoiler alert. It, it is a poorly designed trap where there's no player skill. It's all luck of roles. Anyway, go, go listen to, to it on Carl's show. I'll have a link in the show notes and that way I won't be spoiling that adventure. And if you don't mind it being spoiled, you can go over to Carl's and hear it over there. So you're responding to, to uh, minion about the, Experience points, which I think is really smart. Um, and it just made me think that in Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerer of Hyboria, now shortened to Hyboria, um, you, henchman is a whole different thing. It's like a high level thing you get. Like when you get to a higher level, you could have the option to have them. Um, but what they have is retainers and hirelings, basically. Those guys don't get experience points when they adventure with you. They're generally zero level fighters or whatever. Um, and my players have used them a bunch. Nobody's actually brought on an actual henchman yet. Um, though we do have this one NPC in the party that kind of covers that if a player dies, uh, they take over that NPC temporarily, um, just because uh, she joined the party a while back and she hasn't left yet. But yeah, I, I like this idea of zero-level retainers not taking experience points and basically just being there to help uh, give the party some more fighting ability. Also, <laughs> I love the idea of the henchman being like mirror image. That's such a great way to do it. I mean, generally, if I have like five players and five henchmen, I'll just roll a D10 to see who it hits, so it's equal among everybody. But doing it so you roll the D5 first, and then if it hits the the you know the magic user and they've got three henchmen, then you roll a D4 there to see if it hits one of the three henchmen. That's actually pretty good. I don't know how the odds work out, but I think that does favor players that have henchmen, which is definitely incentivizing it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how happy I am with the mirror image thing. I, I think that definitely benefits the players. So I, I guess it's okay. I, I personally would always want to make the party answer for deaths of henchmen and hirelings. So in AD&D, there, there is a difference. Hirelings are your zero-level characters, NPCs, that can, they never gain experience points. They never gain levels. They never advance in the game. So a hireling, you just pay. They, they come on the adventure. Their morale is based around their pay, how well you treat them, everything like that. But a hireling does not advance, so really a hireling probably shouldn't be taking any experience points away from the party. There's a little bit of question on that, depending. I mean, it's kind of a little confusing the way it's written in the books. So in the player's guide on page 107, it talks about this a, a little bit. Now, henchmen, but before I read from the player's guide... Henchmen are these higher level characters that do have class. So hirelings also don't have really have classes. Hirelings might be men at arms or they might be laborers or something like that. But a hireling pretty much just has hit points, right? 
the men at arms might have, you know, basic stats, but you don't roll full out attributes or anything for your hirelings. Your henchmen are full characters, full NPCs, and they can gain experience. They can gain levels. So the henchmen are the ones that you, you hire that if your character goes down, then you promote a henchman as your new character, stuff like that. What it says in the player's handbook is, remember, character henchmen will gain only one half of total experience. Now, that's interesting because what happens is you spread your a henchman only gets half the experience, half the value of experience that they're awarded. So the way I see that is this. If you're having your adventure and you have three player characters and they have one henchman, when you get experience points, you divide it four ways. Say you get a thousand experience points. Then each of the characters gets 250 experience points. The henchman gets 250 experience points. But when the henchman sheet, you only record 125 experience points because they can only benefit from half of that that they receive. And the same thing with treasure. If you got a thousand gold and you brought a thousand gold back to town and they each got one experience for one gold, then the characters, the PCs would get 250 experience points for bringing back that, that gold. But the henchmen would only get 125 experience points for bringing back that 250 gold pieces because they can only benefit from half the experience. That's only referenced as far as I can tell in that one sentence in the player's handbook. <laughs> so many of these rules are spread out. It's like two-handed weapons, right? What weapons are two-handed in AD&D? Do you know what book it's marked in? If you go to Oriental Adventures in the weapons list, the bold weapons are two-handed weapons. And guess what? Battle axes, they're one-handed weapons. The footman's mace, well, funny enough, they only list a mace in there. That's a whole nother. The footman's and horseman's weapons is a whole nother topic we'll talk about some one these days. But if you want to know what weapon, now not all the weapons are in that list in Oriental Ventures. But if you go to that book, it, the the weapons are in bold. Those are the two-handed weapons that they consider two-handed weapons. Core three books, you, you don't find that. So yeah, it's kind of weird the way they spread rules out. But yeah, that's the thing with henchmen hirelings. Henchmen do they they get effectively a full share but or the way i would do it is they get a full share but they only actually benefit from half of that full share now you could hire them on when you're hiring those henchmen i guess you could hire them well you get they could get a half share of gold you, you know kind of like it, with with ships back in the day the share you, you got you know like a whaling ship or something but with experience points, the players don't get to negotiate that because the G the DM gives out the experience points. So the players can sit there and do a contract that says you you only get a half share of experience points, but they don't get to a lot of experience points. So as a DM, I would always, if that henchman was an active part of that fight, then they get a full share of the experience points, even though they only benefit from half of it. Maybe that'll generate some calls. Who knows? Okay, we got more from Daniel. So uh, you're talking about emulating the fiction. It's funny because I have a note for myself to make a uh, a podcast about this, but I'll quickly say here, hopefully quickly, that I actually think Chainmail and ODND with Chainmail, obviously, uh, emulate Lord of the Rings type stuff. Awesome. I was just rewatching the three movies. I mean, you know, at least it that way. And you see Gandalf, right, on a horse, not wearing any armor, 
going through this like battle and like all the other soldiers around him, he's knocking them back left and right. The soldiers dying left and right, but your hero never gets hit because they are the last one that will go down in a group. You have this almost like strange plot armor in Chainmail that I think really works for that kind of heroic fiction where you, it's, it's gritty, you could die at any moment, but you're not going to be the one to go down in the group of soldiers fighting when there's a war. You'll be the last one standing for sure. Hey, Daniel, good call there. I still think there's a lot to Chainmail and od and I, I really do. And I think that as far as a game to emulate those kind of things, I think Chainmail does a great job. From what I've, you know, I've, I say that. I've never <laughs> played Chainmail and od and so, so I don't know. But from reading it and looking at it, it, it really looks like, and hearing you talk about it and your actual plays and all that kind of thing, it, it looks like it really would do a wonderful job at doing that. Um, and I have to admit, that's something I, you know, they used to show the Lord of the Rings on, on TV every year. They would, I don't, maybe they didn't show the Lord of the Rings. They used to show Return of the King every year. And I like to rewatch those three movies too. I haven't watched them for a couple of years. I need to rewatch them, of course. They're really great movies. The, of course, the 77 Hobbit, 1980s Return of the King. Both of those are by Rankin and Bass. And, uh, of course, the Return of the King is the follow up to the wonderful Lord of the Rings by Ralph Baskey. It'd be nice if they could do a live action. Well, that's kind of live action because it's got rotoscope, you know, and rotoscope is pretty awesome in that 78 animated film. But it, it, a, a live action Lord of the Rings would be kind of neat. I don't think you could really do it. So to me, I I, I think those animated movies are, are the best we're ever going to get. The, you know, the 77 Hobbit, 78 Lord of the Rings, and 80 Return of the King. Yeah, Chainmail, I think, does a great job emulating all that kind of stuff. I think from this... It does a good job emulating sword and sorcery done right in the way you're playing with it. I'm looking forward to when we get to actually play that. So I'm, I'm waiting to hear a call so we can schedule that play test, Daniel. You know, it's interesting. You're talking about, uh, you know, the group being made together. Maybe they'll work better together or whatever. This is where I think players need to not be so set on the character they make for the first few sessions. This is probably going to sound off to people that love to build their characters with backstories and such. But when I come into a session or a game with my character, I've got a basic idea of what's been going on with them. But if it makes sense for me to kind of shift that slightly and it doesn't, you know, I wouldn't do it for like power building. But if so that the narrative works a little better, I have no problem doing that. And I think a lot of players, at least the ones I play with regularly have no problem with that and if the player characters are flexible then i think you can kind of in the first three sessions do little tweaks to your characters so that they all kind of just end up working together yeah and like you i am not a fan of telling people they should play a certain class as a party is composed a certain way i've never been a fan of that i feel like if you present games and i don't know that all modules are presented this way so i can't really say it but if you present games in a way that there are situations and the players do what they need to do to get by, uh, that is no narrative story path uh, set up, then almost any group should be able to do something in that world based on their skill set. You know, maybe completely different than what a different group would do, but it can still be really fun 
and really awesome, I think. This is a bonus message because I did speech to text and the last message I sent you was supposed to be called Balance in the Group and instead I think it went through as Alex in the Group. And you're probably wondering who the heck Alex is. So this is a message so that you know that I was not in fact referring to Alex, although Alex is more than welcome at my table if they decide to join. Daniel, I couldn't agree more. Alex is totally welcome in my group as well. Alex, you can join any of my games anytime. You're very welcome. As far as balance in the group and character creation, I I kind of do like to do character creation together, but not as much a balance. I, I think balance can be important. If you have a game that like D&D, where only, especially when they get into the point where they codify only thieves can do certain things. Well, if you don't have a thief, it makes it hard to <laughs> do certain things. If only thieves can, you know, search for and remove traps and dis- disarm traps and things like that. Well, but but my thoughts on thieves are well known. In AD&D, of course, a monk can do everything a thief can do that matters as far as traps go. Or you could do a multi-class thief something else. So you have options. I think if the game has certain things built into it, then you might need to spread that out a little bit. Maybe not try to balance of have one of each, but you do need a little bit of diversity in the different kinds of characters in the party. But depending on the game, you could always hire you know, henchmen to fill that out as well. So a first level party, that's not as easy to do. But once you get up in levels, you can get lower level henchmen and so you can fill out those blanks in your group. I, I think there is some value to creating your characters together, though, because you can kind of riff on backstories and and, and kind of create them together. So I kind of like that. But, yeah, it's definitely not necessary. But but I do think it helps the party feel more cohesive if you sit there and everybody creates them together. I think you, you hit the ground rolling a little bit faster. Hey, Jason. M.W. here again from Worlds of M.W. Lewis, the new podcast, the new sensation. It's it's um. F- flying around the world, it's. I, I think the Koreans were out celebrating uh, my latest cast just the other day. That's how hot it is. So I, all your listeners really should tune in. And and I apologize for the the commercial, but um, doppelgangers, tongue in tongue in cheek. The comment must have been tongue in cheek. The doppelganger is not a language you can learn in uh, at least in Advanced Dungeons and Dragons One E. So any player who told me they were going to speak doppel doppelganger. At my table, I would just laugh my you-know-what off and say, no, you're not, because it's not on the list of languages you can learn, neither in the player manual and in the DMG. And I opened up the monster manual even, and to be honest with you, I, ne- I never even thought doppelgangers had their own language. So anyway, I think it was tongue-in-cheek. Great show. Bye. Thank you so much for the calls. Really appreciate it. Everybody go check out that podcast. There's a link in my show notes. It's a brand new podcast. only three episodes out at the time I'm recording this. So it's easy to catch up on. So there's that. As far as Doppelganger, yeah, you know, that is a great point. And for some reason, it went right over my head. My being a short guy probably helps with things going over my head. But Doppelganger does not have, there's no language listed as Doppelganger. And I went and did a quick search. I didn't do a comprehensive search. But I did a quick search through other editions and didn't see a language listed for them in other editions either. I found something called a Forgotten Realms wiki that references a lot of the books and games like Baldur's Gate and different things. And spoiler alert, 
in the Forgotten Realms wiki, apparently in a in one of the novels, it said they were believed to be an artificial race created by a creator race known as the Bactrashi to serve as spies and assassins, at least in the Forgotten Realms world. So, yeah, I don't think doppelgangers have their own language, to be honest. In later editions, they appear to communicate telepathically. I don't think that's the case in first edition AD and D because they don't have any psychic powers. They're they're not their list is not being psychic, but yeah, for the most part, I don't think they have their own language, from what I can tell. So you wouldn't be able to learn doppelganger. So that's a great point. I don't know. I, I'm interested to see what other people have to say because I, like I say, I took it tongue in cheek as well. But at least two folks I know of took them seriously. And we'll see what Daniel himself says. Okay, so about the doppelganger thing. Here's the deal. What I say in doppelganger is, hey, I'm Daniel, and I am not a doppelganger. If you can understand me and you are a doppelganger, I'm going to slay you now. So if you can understand me and you're not a doppelganger, you better tell me right now. Thank you. And it is a well-known fact that clearly the doppelganger would tell me that they were a doppelganger because doppelgangers are surprisingly honest. I know that sounds odd, but yeah, doppelgangers cannot deny it. They can never say, I am not a doppelganger if you ask them. It's just like an undercover cop. Once you say, hey, are you, you know, to the, to the prostitute they try to pick up, hey, are you an undercover cop? They can't say, oh, no, I'm not an undercover cop. Same thing with doppelganger. You say, are you a doppelganger? And they're like, no, 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 I'm not. You know they're not. In which case, I would not kill them. So I think my plan is foolproof, but now you may or may not have solved the riddle here. Because how exactly do I speak doppelganger? Unless I'm a doppelganger. But nobody's asked me if I am, so who knows? Daniel, that's flawless logic, especially the part where you compare it to like an undercover cop as the middies, an undercover cop. I it's foolproof. I, I have to agree with you. Flawless logic. Now, Daniel's going to call, well, actually, Daniel and Walt are going to talk about ear seekers. So I'm going to play these calls and I'll, I'll pick up in the middle. But I've dug up a lot of stuff on the history of the ear seeker that I'm looking forward to talk about. But let's do a couple of these calls first. So you're in the middle of talking about the ear seeker. And of course, I have to call in the middle of you talking. Um, I think it's really interesting, right? Because you you say, oh, yeah, you know, if DM gets annoyed with everybody listening at doors, then they put the air seeker in, right? Which is, I think, what people would imagine. That, that sounds like a jerk DM to me. But anyways, but what's funny about it is your solution, which is exactly correct in my mind, is that the door looking like it would be rotted means that the players can figure out that they're there. So now instead of the players saying, yeah, I want to listen to the door, they're going to say, I'd like to look at the door first and put my torch against it to make sure that there's nothing living on there every single time, which now means that the annoying thing that the players were going to do is doubled. So take that, jerky DM. <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, I think it should be pretty easy to figure out that there. Unless you're rushing, it should be pretty easy to figure it out, like most of these things, honestly. Hey, Daniel, interesting point. Where I got that from actually is straight out of the DMG. When we go to page, I think it's 60. Yeah, it's page 60 here in the DMG under listening at doors. It, it specifically talks about ear seekers in there. It says that um, 
In addition to the simple exercise of observation, many times characters will desire to listen, ear pressed to a portal prior to opening entering. This requires a special check in secret by you to determine if ever any sound is heard. Because of this, continual listening becomes a great bother to the DM. While ear seekers will tend to discourage some, most players will insist on having their characters listen at doors at every premise. First, make certain that you explain to characters that all headgear must be removed in order to listen. Those wearing helmets will probably have to remove a male coif and padded cap as well. Don't forget, the party must also be absolutely silent, and listening will take at least one round. Silent creatures, undead, bugbears, etc. Did you know it? Bugbears were silent? Will never be heard. So you can never hear undead. How often do we listen at doors and do we hear described? You hear shuffling behind the door for undead, right? But the DMG specifically says silent creatures, undead, and bugbears, etc., will never be heard. Sleeping or resting or alerted creatures will not be heard either. So if a creature's sleeping, resting, or it's alert that the characters are on the other side of the door, you won't hear it, even if you successfully listen. If there is something for the listener to hear behind the door, the following probabilities will determine if any sound is heard. And that goes through a list of probabilities by the race. The gnome has the greatest chance of hearing, followed by the elf, halfling, and half-orc, one of the few bones thrown to the half-orc. And then humans, half-elves, and dwarves all have just a 10% chance of hearing anything. Keen-eared individuals will gain a bonus one or two in 20. Use chance of hearing a noise to determine if a character is keen-eared the first time he or she listens at a door. If it's indicated, tell the player to note this fact for his or her character. Player characters will not initially have hearing problems as they wouldn't have survived if they had them. During the course of adventuring, great noise might cause hearing loss. Handle this as you see fit. A loss of hearing might negate the chance to hear something behind a door without any other noticeable effects. And, and then he goes on to, to talk about other things, but yeah, including like how many people can listen to a door. He says only three attempts can be made before the strain becomes too great. After the third attempt, the listeners must cease activity for five rounds before trying to listen again. <laughs> it's pretty great. Go to page 16 of the DMG. You can read all that up. Yeah, I, I think ear seekers very definitely were created because of noise DMs that people listen. But your point is equally valid about the extra precautions the character is going to take. Although the characters taking extra time just means extra wandering monster checks. So that's not all bad for the DM. The way I would handle it in a dungeon is if I determine that there would be air seekers in that dungeon, however I want to do it, the 4% chance I'm going to do it, then I would say if you roll for I put them on the wandering monster list, basically. And then if I rolled them on the wandering monster, then the next time they came to a door, that's when they'd run into them. You know, that, that's how I would handle it. Rolling at every door again just seems kind of silly. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I guess people like to do that. Maybe I'd do that if I was playing solo or something and I was just doing dice stuff because you don't want to have to make decisions. But as a DM actually running the game, I would just put them on the wandering monster list and be done with it. And finally, at least I think finally, again, I haven't listened to your whole uh, message yet or uh, statement yet. Uh, I think I would roll surprise, honestly. I don't think I'd let them get into somebody's ears unless they were surprised by them. So I'd make a surprise check. And if the party was surprised or, you know, 
and I had rolled one dark monster check and the air secret were there, then they'd be in somebody's ear. Otherwise, no. Which means that they there's a very good chance that you're going to notice them. And if you don't, then you just had really bad luck and that's just the nature of it, right? It's kind of like, you know, getting poison ivy. Like, you, you know what poison ivy looks like, you try to avoid it, but it rolls small, you just get it. And to me, that's like an air seeker. You know, you're not going to... You're not going to miss these things most of the time, but the one time you miss them, you'll wish you hadn't. I'm not so sure I agree that these things were made to speed up play at the table. I don't think that rolling dice to check at a door is slowing things down. Uh, I mean, maybe. Uh, I honestly think that they're just there to add more depth, right? Somebody was like, oh man, it'd be terrible if something was in their ear. It's like, oh, a monster. So, and again, like I said, if you're actually using monsters like this, in theory, unless your players just don't learn, it's going to actually make things take longer at the table because they're going to start putting a torch on every single door. They're going to, like, press the doors to see if they're rotted. They're going to do all these other things because they're going to know there's ear, ear seekers. So, to me, it actually will take longer at the, at the door once you know ear seekers exist. So, I don't know. I'm not so convinced they were designed to speed things up. I think I... I have a different opinion to that. I don't know. I wasn't there. So I can't really say. What if warming the door up just brings them to the surface so they're there when you put your ear against it? That torch against the door might backfire, huh? So as far as their origin, I have looked into this a little bit now. I should have looked more into it at the time, but I didn't. And it really appears that the ear seekers come from a story of the English author Oscar Cook. And I don't know that Gary Gygax read the story, but it's a short story called Boomerang. And it it was first published in 1931 by Oscar Cook. And you have two ways you can see this. If you want to hear the short story, you can actually, there's a podcast called Classic Ghost Stories done by Tony Walker, who's an Englishman. And you can go to his podcast and you can hear him read the story, or he's also uploaded to YouTube. So I have that in the show notes, and you can links to both his podcast and the YouTube, so you can go listen to the short story. It's not very long. It's pretty pretty gruesome little tale, well worth your time to go listen to. But I think Boomerang is possibly where Ear Seekers came from. I don't know that Gygax read Boomerang at the time. He might have. What he probably saw as opposed to reading it, was a 1972 episode of Night Gallery. Remember Night Gallery? Night Gallery is a great horror fiction anthology series, kind of like Twilight Zone. Well, at the end of the second season of Night Gallery, there is an episode called The Caterpillar, and it's an adaptation of Boomerang. And The Caterpillar is a very well-acted, you can find it on, if you Google it, I don't know if the full thing is on YouTube. It's on Daily Motion. It's on a couple other things. Just go to your your search engine choice, type in Night Gallery, the Caterpillar, and you'll get under the video options. You'll get a chance to watch it if you want to. And it, it's actually really well done. If you will see an actor that believably shows that they're in agony, watch this. Also worth mentioning, in this episode, we have Jonah Patet. And that name may or may not ring a bell. It probably should. She was, of course, in a a bunch of different things. Um, Maybe most famously, we would remember her from, 
well, I don't know. I don't know what modern people remember, but she's been in a, a, a bunch of different great movie shows in the, in the far, in the Casino Royale farce in 67, she played Mata Bond. She was Richard Crenna's wife in The Evil, if you remember The Evil, which is a haunted house movie. Also in The Evil, which has a pretty good cast, we have Mary Louise Weller, who's not in a whole lot, unfortunately. She's a pretty good actress that I enjoy. She is most famous probably as Mandy Pepperidge in Animal House. She also plays Chuck Norris's girlfriend in Force Vengeance. And she's in Q, The Winged Serpent, another great movie. So there's some interesting ties with the evil. Another great actor in the evil, of course, is Andrew Prynn. Andrew Prynn's in a, a number of different things. Pretty great actor. He's got a really wide oeuvre of different things. But I, I always remember him, of course, from Simon King of the Witches. Pr- pretty fun little movie. But anyway. The show isn't about the evil, but you can find that on streaming services if you want to see a nice little 70s haunted house movie. If you've seen the latest Quentin Tarantino movie, the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, an actress portrays Patet in that movie because she actually in real life had lunch at Shannon Tate's home just hours before the Manson family came in and killed Miss Tate. So P- Petita kind of a, tra- she's still alive actually, but kind of some tragedy mixed in there anyway. But that's where the ear seeker comes from. As far as I can tell is from this Oscar cook story, but most probably it was seen in this episode, the Caterpillar on night gallery in 1972. So now that we have that history behind us, let's switch gears and get, have another caller talk to us. We're going to go back to Walt. Good morning, Jason. Walt here, aka MW from Worlds of MW Lewis. And listen to your latest pod. Love the new segment on Gotcha Monsters. I learned a lot about ear seekers. I'd never used them before, and now I'm going to. And I like your suggestions on how to use them. And um, I'm going to use them in every campaign I run. Not excessively. I agree with your thought that it it cannot be uh, excessive. And, of course, the Monster Manual makes it pretty clear it shouldn't be excessive. You know, that brings up another good point worth discussing on helmets. I don't think a lot of players realize they're, they're wearing helmets and have to remove them to do the listening functions. Of course, thieves and magic users, I would say, never wear helmets, but all the other character types should be wearing helmets. So anyway, great segment, and I really enjoyed it. Helmets are very interesting. Thank you for that call. What it says in, in, in the DMG is that one in six blows by non-intelligent creatures are at your head. And one in two blows, 50% of the blows from intelligent creatures are at your head. So if you're wearing a helmet, then it's the same armor class rest your body, and that's irrelevant. But if you're not wearing a helmet, then every blow, every blow that comes at you, the DM should be rolling. If it's a non-intelligent creature, roll one in six chance of hitting in the head. Intelligent cr- creature, uh, 50% chance of hitting in the head. E- every time that should be happening if you're not wearing a helmet, or if you're wearing a great helm. Because a great helm lowers your head to AC1. So if you're wearing plate mail, it's AC3. And a great helm, which is AC1, then it actually matters where that blow is thrown, whether it's going to hit you or not. Now, the great helm has some negatives too. But yeah, helmets are are another little interesting subset of rules 
in AD&D. It's, so AD&D doesn't have called shots, but they're kind of baked in the rules here or there, like the, like the headshot rule here. And then also a lot of monsters have special rules where you have to do called shots like to arms or to different things. So we have one final call with this episode. Carl Rodriguez, the geomologist himself, who's got a great podcast, The Geomologist Presents, that I referred to earlier in the show. He's going to close this out talking about Cobra Kai. Hey, Jason. I, I think I agree with you with regards to Cobra Kai. I, I really like the Johnny story but uh, and his redemption and that arc and even bringing back uh, you know Crease. But now it's like, I don't even remember any of these characters. Um, I guess they're expanding the universe and bringing back people from other karate kids. I mean, I don't know. Um, but apparently people like it and it's doing well. And they've got five, maybe six seasons. So hopefully it doesn't just kind of peter out. I definitely will finish watching it at some point. But the taking a break after a few episodes, I think, might be good, at least for us. Hey, Carl. Yeah, I definitely think a palate cleanser is needed now and then from the soul-crushing thing that modern TV is. So I thought, what would Carl watch? I know you like historical stuff, and you seem to like historical fiction okay. So what I did is I looked for some kind of Roman-based historical fiction. And I found this English author named Lindsay Davis, and they did a TV movie based on one of her books. She has interest in history and archaeology, has written a number of novels based in, in Rome, and has really good reviews on Goodreads, stuff like that. There's a 1993 TV movie called Age of Reason. And here, I'll play you a audio clip so you can see how authentic it all is. Hail Garrus Libertus. The day is honored by your presence. Juno's name is that. Oh, that's Falco. You remember him, Garrus. He was that private inform you hired to recover me from those salation pirates. Justus fights like a god, doesn't he? Justice? Oh, yeah. A regular Mars-made flesh. And may I add that the Lady Livia has a keen eye for good combat. Lady Livia has a keen eye for far too many things. <laughs> and considering what it costs me, it would have been cheaper to have let the pirates keep her. At least they had what it took to keep me occupied. I'll wager they all got to occupy you. Look, while we're on the subject of finance, it's just a small matter of my fee, which is still outstanding. Just a slight oversight by your account, no doubt, but... Money and more money. Great Jupiter's loins, you sound like our new Caesar over there. That's Apazian. That's what all Rome thinks about these days. That's all you have any passion for. It's different. I'm a senator. Do you know he has put a tax on owning more than a hundred gladiators? Inconceivable. I swear the man's trying to erase the Roman deficit and ruin me in the process. As you can see, Australian actor Brian Brown does an excellent job getting that Roman accent perfect. Of course, Brian Brown, I know best from the movie FX. I used to love that movie when that came out. Of course, you know, that was back in the days of HBO and Cinemax, and they'd reshow the same movies a lot. I watched FX a ton of times, really enjoyed that movie. About a, what was it? <laughs> I say that, and I don't even remember the plot. He, he was a special effects guy. And he got involved somehow in a murder thing, or the mob was after him or something, and there was FX2. Maybe I'm conflating the two plots. But anyway, he used special effects stuff to help capture and go after the bad guys. Fun movies. I'm sure you can find them streaming somewhere. Highly recommended. His accent isn't quite out of 
place in FX like it is in Age of Treason. Okay, folks, this has been a long show. I'm going to cut it off here. I'll be back on Wednesday. I'll publish it like midnight Wednesday, you know, early morning Thursday. That way there's a little more space between the two shows. Thank you so much to all my callers. Thank you for you that tuned in to listen to the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you to Ray Otis for the coffee cup clip art. TJ Drennan for the music. If you want to take part in the show, you can reach out to me on Discord. You can leave a message on Anchor. You can send an email to nerdsrpgvarietycast at gmail.com. If you leave a audio message, I'll play it on the air and make you famous. Look in the show notes. There are links to everything I've talked about in the show notes. So check those things out. And I will talk to you guys later in the week. Take care. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Maybe it's your auntie or a joke about your spouse, but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head, and the only question left is if I fail to shoot him dead. Bring on the gold, bring on the gold. I want some more, bring on the gold. Well, your butcher is a dustman, and your moil is quite a tipper, and I'm assuming that your partner back there in the wood chipper. Don't look away. Are rising and the world is gone to hell. We're living for the dying and we're dying for the train wreck.